You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning into Labor Relations Radio. You know, even before launching LaborUnionNews.com earlier this year, and especially since, I get a lot of emails about unions, what's going on with regard to collective bargaining, negotiations, strikes, etc., as well as policy issues that are going on in Washington, D.C., as well as around the country. And as host of this podcast, I try to bring you topics that are relevant in the world of labor relations or human resources. And in doing so, I've found that it's difficult to keep up with it all. However, there are a few groups that publish more pertinent news or timely information that I do tend to pay attention to more so than others. Well, about two weeks ago, I received an email blast from the Coalition for a Democratic Workplace, which is a coalition comprised of hundreds of organizations representing millions of businesses that employ tens of millions of workers nationwide in just about every industry. And the CDW has been around since 2005 when unions and their allies in Congress were trying to eliminate secret ballot elections and install a process called card check through a bill called the Employee Free Choice Act, or as I used to call it back then, the hallucinogenically named Employee Free Choice Act because it really had little to do with free choice. It was all about putting workers into unions, even through means that were more surreptitious or Uh, deceitful. So, however, since 2009 or 2010, when EFCA officially died the mm, ignominious death that it deserved, the coalition turned its focus to regulatory overreach by the National Labor Relations Board, which has, has tried to enact the goals of EFCA through its decisions and regulations. And the board has, according to the CDW's website, quote, repeatedly tried to upend labor relations to increase the number of dues-paying union members without regard to the negative consequences of doing so for employees, employers, and the economy. So today, again from the CDW's website, the CDW is now fighting to check the NLRB's expansive overreach and ensure federal labor laws remain balanced and protect the rights of employees and employers alike. So with that as a backgrounder, this brings us back to CDW's email blast, which contained links to a couple of different CDW press releases. One was a press release opposing the insertion of card check into the National Defense Authorization Act of 2022, or NDAA. And the other was a press release on the issuance of a report on the dangers of online voting in union representation election. Both of these are issues I had not heard about. And unless you live inside the D.C. Beltway or are involved in the the behind-the-scenes politics of labor policy, I'm betting that you haven't heard about them either. So I wanted to reach out to the coalition and find out what's going on and was lucky enough to connect with Ed Eggy. And he chairs the coalition's lobbying committee. Now, Ed Eggy is also the vice president of government relations and workforce development at the National Retail Federation. And as such, Ed is responsible for the Retail Federation's policy agenda on labor, employment, immigration, health care and workforce development. Ed went to the National Retail Federation from the National Labor Relations Board, where he was director of the Office of Congressional and Public Affairs, and he oversaw the board's relationship with Congress, other other federal agencies, as well as the news media and outside groups. He's also a former Republican staff director for the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee Subcommittee on Employment and Workplace Safety. Talk about a mouthful there. So from a policy perspective, Mr. Eggy is in the thick of it, so to speak. So here's Ed Eggy. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So Ed Eggy, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. How are you this evening? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate sure. it. I, I thought we could kind of talk about a whole bunch of different things. Um, but before we do that, would you mind explaining what the National Retail Federation is? Absolutely. So the National Retail Federation, we represent... 
stores of all shapes and sizes and uh, throughout the industry. Uh, we're the largest retail uh, trade association. So we represent wholes wholesalers, we represent grocery stores, we represent, represent online retailers, we represent um, hardware stores, and uh, I've been with NRF since uh, 2020. Oh, cool. So um, you're, you're commenting a, a few minutes ago before I hit the record button that you had a little bit of background or familiarity with the NLRB, which is part of what I wanted to get into with you. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so I, I worked um, at the NLRB from 2019 to 2020. I was their director of congressional and public affairs. So I had um, had coordination with uh, all the members of Congress that had interest in NLRA issues. I worked with the White House. I worked with uh, with reporters in, in the media, and I also uh, coordinated our intergovernment affairs. Oh, cool. So um, let me ask you, that, and the reason I wanted to reach out was there's a press release. I think it was a press release, but there's a um, lengthy kind of email that went out just a blast about some of the things that are current, currently going on with the NLRB budget requests in terms of electronic voting. Yeah. And um, there's some pushback on the uh, card check in the NDAA, I believe. That's correct. Yeah. Um, you know, and card check is obviously a concept that's been around quite some time. Obviously, there was a huge, huge fight over this. I was uh, in Congress at the time from 2003, I'd say, to 2006. This was a huge fight. The Then then the name of the bill was the Employee Free Choice Act, EFCA, but commonly referred to as card check. And, then, you know, this is simply the idea that unions can organize without a secret ballot vote, uh, that they can simply go to a group of workers and organize and demand that the employer bargain based on signed cards or a written petition. <clears throat> that that concept has been uh, essentially, you know, uh, put off to the side for a few years. It hasn't been pushed in Congress, but more recently, we've seen this effort at electronic voting. For the last few years, there's been a, uh, an appropriations rider in place where the National Labor Relations Board could not implement electronic voting. Uh, we're seeing a, we're seeing an attempt now in Congress to require the National Labor Relations Board to do exactly that, which is to go down the road of electronic voting. I think this is something that concerns employers, but also also should concern many employees. And the reason, and there's a lot of objections here, and um, we just the CDW, which I chair the coalition, uh, excuse me, I chair the uh, lobbying committee of that coalition. That's the coalition on for a democratic workplace. So we just released a report on this and. You know, when it comes to electronic voting, there's a lot of concerns, but I think, you know, there's no question that uh, the, uh, under current technology, it's largely very, the, we, has, we have serious questions about the security of that voting procedure. And, but I think that's only sort of a secondary issue. I think the same, same concerns that we had, that a lot of folks had, you know, on both sides of the aisle in Congress concerning card check, all those same concerns apply to electronic voting. And let me just explain that for a second. So, you know, card check, what we said was, what card check really at the end of the day did was it prevented the employee from having the ability to vote in the privacy of a voting booth. So when I was at the NLRB, you know, when we went to run an election wherever, you know, Homestead, Florida, we would go down to some, you know, county down there, some some city down there, and just borrow the same, you know, same voting voting machines that are used every other November. And, you know, this secret ballot, this private ballot is the best way, and the Supreme Court has said this on numerous occasions, has the best way of, of ascertaining the will of those voters, whether they want to be organized or not. And that's obviously a huge question. And what it allows the employee to do is to tell the union what they what they want to hear and tell the employer what they want to hear and then in the privacy of a voting booth vote however they darn well please and so again card check essentially prevented the employee from having that option and that's the exact same scenario that's going to happen with these with these cell phone cell phone based voting systems which is the all the union needs to say is meet us at x location at y time and we want to watch you enter in your union yes vote, and a lot, and it just and if we don't see you see you show up at that room, 
we're going to assume you're against us. And it, it's just incredibly coercive. And it just removes the ability of the employee to cast their ballot as they wish in, in privacy. And I think that's, that's our concern at this point. So one of the things I saw in the, in the release was that there was a, was it a rider in the budget for spending no less than a million dollars to implement the electronic voting? I'm not sure it was in the budget. I believe it was an appropriations bill. Okay. And then there's something else in the defense appropriations bill on card check with that. Right. Yeah, so there's a number of there's a number of amendments on that piece of legislation. One of which insists on neutrality agreements. This is where the employer uh, has to to get essentially to get a defense contract would have to uh, assert no position on the unionization of uh, of their employees. Um, so yeah, so these are you know I think that that bill is a long way from being done. The Senate still has still has to have their say. Um, I do suspect at the end of the day that those writers will come off that um, that the Senate the, there's no way those that those particular provisions get 60 votes in the Senate. We're seeing a lot more um, efforts to sneak in little things like this. Like I believe it was the American Competes Act that had card check and neutrality in there, right? Yeah, it's various times. Just about every major piece of legislation. Um, union lobbyists are very talented for at sliding in these pieces of, uh, of um, you know, sliding into these pieces of legislation, uh, little, little, little nuggets, little, uh, little riders, uh, and it keeps us busy for sure. Little, um, little changes to the NLRA or to, to uh, you know, it's a very, it's a various, um, you know, it's various statutes, and uh, there's no question we have to keep our eye on it. But yeah, they. Um, at one point, we um, we certainly pushed back on on a card check provision that was included in. I, I think it was Build Back Better, but it's hard to even remember at this point. But yes, no question, they come up a lot. Did I? I don't recall. Did it come out of the Competes Act, or did it get through there? I don't no, even it, know. If, did the Competes Act even pass? No, it has not. Um, okay. And it's been in, it's had a whole bunch of different variations. But um, I believe the the current bill they they keep at this point is now. Um, is now a slimmed version down version of what they call they're calling USICA or the chips bill. Um, and it doesn't have any of these provisions in it. Are you, are you seeing other like car check popping up in other areas? You know, I, you know, I, I would say increasingly, you know, I mean, again, you know, I support the union's right, right to organize these folks. Right. So if they have a good, if they have a good message and they can go to, a group of workers and they can they can make their case you know and they win about two-thirds of the time and that's consistent across both republican and democratic administrations um you know they can they can organize these facilities where we're what we're seeing is the unions don't want to essentially have to have to make those arguments they want to limit the employer's ability to we can get into to that whole issue about what the where the employer's speech rights are but you know what what they're what they're doing is instead of making the case to the employees they're trying to use the, the levers of government or the media or politics or social media you know to essentially coerce these companies into card check agreements and um, so that's i'd say that's where that's where we're seeing it yeah, there's. Um, I was curious as to whether or not, with all the talk about the Green New Deal and and the legislation that they're trying to, I think President Biden came out yesterday or a couple of days ago and said they're going to be doing something using his powers, executive orders. I assume that they're going to be doing something along those lines. So I was Correct. just wondering if there's any word as to whether or not card check or neutrality were in there. No, I think it's pretty clear that um, that card check, you know, something that dramatic would have to go through Congress. I think, um, you know, there's a, there is an issue now bouncing around the board. Um, clearly, the general counsel over there has has her opinions on this matter, but to, you know, reassessing the Joy Silk doctrine so that the the employ the onus is on the employer to prove um, to prove that there is in fact a um, a demonstration of uh, a lack of demonstration of interest to sort of push push good, that yeah good know, faith doubt yeah good faith doubt thank you yeah so push that back in the card check direction but to really go to card check universally for uh, you know for most if not all elections I think that would have to be a, a congressional action so. Um, 
I know there's there's a letter that was sent by the Republicans. I think um, Virginia Fox and and a couple others had sent a letter regarding uh, the general counsel's move towards banning captive audience meetings. Yeah, and, yeah. I I think this is a really important issue. And so, I mean, when we say captive audience, just even using that term sort of conjures up the notion of employees being locked in a room, you know, with with highly skilled, um, coercive, uh, hired guns uh, of the employer trying to convince them for the lack, uh, you know, to, you know, to not organize. In reality, I think there's a couple of things going on. So first off, when Americans organize themselves into unions or into companies, they don't immediately cede and give up their right to free speech. Employers have the right to free speech. They have the right to convey their thoughts um, to their employees, uh, as they do on all manner of issues: what to what to wear, what you know, how to behave, how how to act towards customers, whatever you know, whatever the issue is. So, first off, I think um, I think there's I think that's something we've tried to tried to assert in our conversations with Congress and with, um, and with Jennifer, Jennifer, Jennifer Bruce or the general counsel of the NLRB, um, is that employers, you know, have, have the ability, you know, and Supreme court has said as much to, to convey their positions on these. That's sort of number one. And number two is what we think of as in terms of captive audience and what Ms. Abruzzo is coming after employee employers for are two very, very different things. So, as I understand it, the general counsel's position is essentially any employer-initiated conversation about unionization is essentially prohibited in her view. So it doesn't need to be captive in her, you know, captive being held. But her position is that the employee, under all circumstances, has the right to refrain from even engaging in a conversation with the employer. Um, she's picking up the, you know, the refrain from. Uh, protected concerted activity language from Taft Hartley, uh, which is a complete misapplication of that piece uh, of that of that statute, and so um, that's why I think uh, Dr. Fox, uh, I believe uh, Senator Braun was on that letter. I think they're right to raise the issue that um, that she is acting well outside of that which which employers understand. To be, you know, permissible in the workplace, employers they they understand they have the right to convey their opinions to their employees, and they're finding themselves, you know, faced with unfair labor practice charges for engaging in conduct which has been absolutely unquestionably legal for decades. And so, um, you know, as these cases work their way up to um, to the federal courts, we hope that we certainly expect that federal, federal courts are going to side with employers on this issue. I think part of the flawed logic that they've got is, um, and I understand, you know, under the freedom of association, their, their view is that employers should have no say whatsoever. Like employees should be able to join unions and do all that, which they do have the right to do. Of course. Um, and then, but the next step is, and once they've done that, we, the government, are going to force you to bargain with that union, which if you've got the freedom of association, which also includes like the freedom of the contract, you should also have the right not to. But if, if you're going to come into my workplace and tell me that I've got to now bargain with you and I have no say over that, it's kind of like flawed. The whole logic train is, is running off the tracks. And so the obviously the union argument is employers should have no say and they should you know give us everything we want, but that's not how the world works. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. It's really it's very concerning to my members at the National Retail Federation the way the way that this particular general counsel has been interpreting these interpreting the statute. Um, she's ter- certainly taking uh, positions that really you know that I, as far as I can know, tell that really you know, no previous general counsels of either party have taken. Right. It's, um, yeah, it, it seems as though she had it ready to go as soon as she hit the ground. Yeah. I mean, she, look, she's been at the board for, you know, previously she was very, very briefly, um, a general, general counsel in the past, I believe just for a matter of days, just as it worked out. Um, and, you know, and she was obviously general counsel, I believe at the communication workers of America. I mean, she knows, 
you know, she knows these issues very, very well. She's given them a lot of thought. She's a very talented lawyer. I'm not taking any of that away from her. I would just say that, you know, I would, you know, I would say to Ms. Abruzzo, if I, you know, if, if I were to engage, I would say, look, I am not for one, for one second. And I don't think NRF has ever taken the position that every employer is out there and every employer is perfect. I don't think we're, we, we take that position. I would say that there are employers out there violating the National League Relations Act that, uh, somewhere in this country right now, there's people trying to organize a facility, whether it's you know a construction facility or, or a store or anything, um, and they're going to be you know and they're they're going to be trying to you know and the employer is going to try to be co- you know intentionally coercive or is going to fire employees for trying to organize or is going to threaten to close down a facility. I mean, these are these are areas of the NLRA which are you know are which we've known for decades is you know, is protected, uh, you know, are things that employers can't simply can't do those. Uh, we know those employers are out there, go find them, but instead they're using their resources and, and, you know, it's a small agency, they have limited resources and they're using their resources to do things like, you know, you know, issue new, you know, issue charges about how uh, employee handbooks, handbooks are written, you know, that the employee handbooks are too vague or too overly broad. I mean, you know, and it takes my my members uh, no end of time and resources and money to examine exactly what she is prosecuting or going after these employer employers for. Um, and, you know, my members spend a lot of time trying to figure out exactly where the lines are on these things and, you know, obviously stay well within the legal boundaries. Um, and, you know, and, and I would just say, look, I mean, you know, somewhere, you know, somewhere in this country, you could find legitimate cases of violations of the NLRA. Let's 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 go after those employers. Well, yeah, the problem um, and I've had a lot of conversations on various podcasts about this. The problem with the National Labor Relations Act or the board itself has been it's politicized. So every time there's a new administration that comes in from the opposite party, it just swings back and forth. Oh yeah. And, and I, I joke, I've been doing this labor relations type work, including my union background for close to four decades. So I remember the Reagan era and then Bush and then, you know, so on. So it's just a, it's this pendulum that swings and for employers, it's every four years or every eight years, you've got to sit down and rewrite all your policies or eliminate things. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, and I, and there's no question that's a problem. Right. And, um, and, you know, and it's something that when I was at the board, my boss, uh, John Ring, who was then chairman, you know, I think uh, uh, Chairman Ring made a great point of saying, look, I, one of the reasons that he did rulemaking was because he felt like it would give some permanency to these issues rather than the swinging back and forth over who is and who is an employee under the act, who is, you know, when is, um, you know, who isn't, who isn't a joint employer under the act. These are hugely important issues. You know, who is the supervisor, who is not a supervisor. Right. You know, I mean, and uh, one of the things we did was we issued rules. We issued DOLs to, you know, we issued rules just like DOL does. Um, And that's not something the board is really set up to do. Um, it took a lot of time. It took a lot of resources. Obviously, we got a lot of comments. We had to process those comments consistent with the Administrative Procedures Act. And um, but, you know, I mean, Chairman Ring was consistent the entire time I was there that this is the best way to give permanency to employers and employees and unions so that we all know where the lines are and they aren't constantly moving around uh, every four or eight years, as you articulate. Yeah. And it's, and from the union standpoint, it's frustrating for them as well because, you know, they are, their obvious goal is to expand their membership. So they try to get a, you know, board in there that's favorable to them. And then somebody like a Bush or a Trump or a Reagan or whomever comes in and undoes everything that they've, you know, tried to progress towards. It's yeah. There's no question. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And, um, you know, and then, you know, I mean, Look, I mean, Obama made a lot of changes. Uh, Obama's board certainly was aggressive in dialing the dialing a lot of issues back toward where the unions wanted them. Um, and we tried to do our best to, 
And when I was at the board, look back at the longstanding precedents, what employers and employees and unions were used to following, where, where the lines were, and just simply put the lines back to where they were. Um, you know, if we couldn't do that, we would try to look at Supreme Court decisions or, or um, you know, or appeals court decisions and then, you know, and put our precedents in line, in line with, what, with what the courts were saying. Right. Have you seen... Um... Have you seen it slowing down or is there, obviously there's be some impact. I don't know that it'll be a lot of impact depending on the outcome of the midterms, but there'll be some impact I would think. Have, have you seen it slowing down at all or are they just still full steam ahead? Yeah, um, I would say that uh, that they are full steam ahead, particularly on the general counsel side, that um, that presumably here in a few months that the Republicans will take over the house. Um, and what that does allow Republicans to do for, um, a lot of time when I was there, the Democrats controlled the house. Um, and I believe the Senate too, depending on what was going on at the time, I believe that's correct. Um, and, um, you know, and so it allows you to subpoena documents, to ask for information, to bring the members of the board and the general counsel up in front, you know, in front of the of the committee, ask questions, probe into, you know, into, uh, you know, how they're making, you know, how they're making their decisions. Now, of course, their decisions stand for themselves. And so unlike most federal agencies, it is sort of a different, different conversation with Congress. Um, it's not a policymaking board in the same way that the, you know, that the, uh, that the DOL makes policy, right? So we're, you know, we issue case, you know, we issue, when I was there, we issued cases and, you know, and a lot of times, uh, whether it was Rosa DeLauro or Bobby Scott would want us to explain those decisions. And we said, look, you know, decisions speak for ourselves, themselves, if you want, we're happy to talk about, um, talk about funding or talk about, um, you know, or, you know, how our administration of the board and, you know, how we were using the, the dollars that, uh, that, the, that the federal government provided for us. But, you know, we tried not to, um, we tried not to really go into too much as to why we decided one case one way or the other. Um, but I think to your point, yeah. Um, you know, I think, uh, there's no question that in terms of speed over there right now, that the general counsel is moving much faster than the board, uh, Chairman McFerrin, who is a friend of mine, she and I worked together on the Hill, and then I worked with her again at the board. Uh, I'm, again, very a talented attorney, you know, super knowledgeable on the NLRA and all manner of labor law. I, I would say Chairman McFerrin, um, you know, she's uh, a, a person of her word. You know, when I was at the board, she often criticized us for not putting out issues for public comment, particularly those that uh, change precedent. And now that she's there, she's put out a lot of uh, issues for public comment. And uh, I think I think it's fair to, to get that. I'm, I think it's I'm guessing, but I think it's pr pretty fair guess um, that folks on the left and on, in the union movement are, you know, are frustrated with the speed at, at which the board is moving. But it's perfectly fine as far as I'm concerned. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting because um, back during the Obama board, so Mark Pierce was chairman. You had uh, Richard Griffin, I think, was the general counsel. Abruzzo yep. at the time was assistant general counsel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there you knew who ran the board. Yeah. Um, pretty much the same thing under Trump. And I don't even remember who the general counsel was under Trump. It was Peter um, Robb. Oh, that's right. It's Peter Robb. That's right. Biden fired him first day of, of the right. presidency. Mm -hmm. um, right. And then, but now it seems as though, like, Abruzzo's running the board. And the board itself is kind of like the wagon being pulled by the horse, which is fascinating because she's in the media all the time and she's doing a lot of social, you know, media posts and tweets and and it's like who's running the board now? Seems yeah, like I don't have any particular insight on that right now. Uh, you know, um, it's been uh, it's been quite some time since I was in uh, in the building over there on Half Street. But I, yes, I agree with you. There's no question that uh, General Counsel Bruzzo is out. You know, she's uh, um, out there in the media. She, you know, she just cut an agreement with the Federal Trade Commission this week. Right. You know, she's making waves. Um, you know, I think it's fair to say that the board maybe is not making as many waves to date. I, I, that's going to change, presumably, you know, it could start changing tomorrow for that kind of. 
So do you know much about the FTC partnership that they just signed? I just read the press release. I don't know too much more um, than what I read uh, than the press release. I, you know, I just, you know, to fill the listeners in. So uh, uh, Abruzzo and the uh, chair of the FTC said that they would cooperate on investigations to try to uh, determine when, how, and if employers were violating la uh, labor standards. Um, Chair Chairwoman Khan over at the FTC has made it uh, one of her keen interests to begin working uh, what she would consider to be uh, in, you know, violations of uh, of um, trade trade protocols and. Uh, employment practices, if within a within a particular you know industry or particular area, particularly as it as it applies to mergers and acquisitions. Uh, so NRF filed extensive comments. She put out a request for comments several months ago, uh, asking for input on exactly this issue. To what extent can the FTC take uh, unionization and workforce issues into account? when it uh when it reviews a merger or acquisition so I, I you know i it's going to be interesting to see how this partnership works out i don't again i don't really know much about it but there's no question this is an interest for uh the ftc chair well i in reading it it looked like they're targeting the gig economy um there's references to independent contractors and misclassification yeah. the um i'm curious about what you just said with regard to the mergers and acquisitions and how that would apply to, I guess, unionized facilities. Yeah. I mean, what acquired what, the, I mean, what I think, what I think she was trying to pick up and what we pushed, pushed back on a couple months ago. And uh, it's been a while since, uh, since I worked on these comments, but um, what she, you know, what she would say is that when she's reviewing a merger, she wants to better understand um, the workforce parameters. So if, you know, two semiconductor, you know, um, companies merge, would that, you know, would that create the scenario under which they could then, now that as, as a merged company, pay semiconductor workers less? Um, obviously, for my industry, you know, retailers, we, you know, we would, we argued at length that, uh, ludicrous rationale to make that, you know, if any two stores combined that they could push down wages as a result. But uh, I believe that would essentially be her position. Yeah, I'm wondering, so, um, I know my old union, which is CWA, they've been very active in trying to either go forward or stop mergers within the telecom industry. Right. And I think it was like Sprint and Maybe I don't even remember the other one, but there's a couple couple telecom companies were talking about merging, and they're opposed to it. Um, wondering if that's where they're going with it. Yeah, there's no question. Yeah, I mean, there's no. And then again, all these things give if the, if the unions can you know can meddle into a merger, uh, it gives them that much leverage to insist on card check or to insist on electronic voting um, or to insist on neutrality, that kind of thing. So yeah, I mean. Look, we're seeing an all-of-government approach to uh, to urging, prodding, coercing employees into labor unions. Uh, you know, we're going to see. You just, you know, this is something that's come up at the Supreme Court. And, you know, just Chief Justice Roberts has made this point. Um, you know, whether it's we're, you know, we're seeing, you know, EEOC, you know, going saying like, oh, look, you know, the, we're going to treat you orga organized workers differently. You know, I mean, all these different, all these different agencies that, you know, that, you know, we're going to, you know, the OSHA is going to work with unions to investigate employers' safety practices. It's an all of government approach to try to empower unions, to try to coerce employees into unions, you know, and they've, and they have had some success. I mean, the, you know, if you look at the Q1, election stats that they're, you know, they're up to, that's doubled from Q1 of uh, 2021, um, that um, that the requests for elections are up. You know, I think a lot of that is, uh, is many of these obviously are Starbucks, but by the, by the same token, um, you know, they're, there's, they're going to do their best to use these two or four years or eight years or however long it is in power 
to try to reverse the tide of uh, unionization, you know, which has been falling pretty much steadily since the Second World War. You know, you, you just hit on one point just a second ago, and I'm going to tie it back to a point you made a little while ago. So unions have been winning the majority of elections for at least a decade and usually around two thirds. I think last week they, or it might've been earlier this week, so I'm losing track of time, but they just came out and said that, um, this is according to Bloomberg, they've been winning 77% of the elections, right? Okay. So that's a phenomenal amount. Right. And then, and then you look at all the impact that they're doing or trying to do with using the government as their, their cudgel for lack of a better term. And then you look at Starbucks, where they've had 300 and some odd petitions filed, 100 and some odd number of stores, stores have unionized without the help of the government. That's right. So it's yeah. like, why do you really need the government? Which goes back 100 years ago to Samuel Gomper's argument, you know, you get too reliant on government, it's going to swing back the other way, which has. But you don't really need the government for card check. You know, you don't need card check if you've got... 77% win rate. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot of reasons why their unionization is down. I mean, uh, my boss and I talk about this all the time, and he, he, you know, he finally said to me, you know, can you write down, you know, since the end of the Second World War, when or when unionization was at its peak, all the things, all the privileges, all the perks that you used to essentially have to unionize for, but now are basically you know, our basic American rights as workers. And so, right. I, and, you know, you think about it, you know, 1971, you get the right to a, to a safe workplace under the Occupational Safety and Health Act. Mm -hmm. You get, you know, and then, you know, you get the right, you know, you get Title VII, you know, uh, protection from, um, from, tech, from discrimination. You get the Age Discrimination uh, and Employment Act. You get uh, the uh, ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, and then on the benefits side, obviously, 2010 uh, Obamacare extends the ability to, to every American to produce to procure health care without employment arrangement. Um, 19, going back, 1978 was 401k. So, so I just wrote all this down for my boss, and I said, you know, I mean, there's a lot of reasons. Obviously, employers know what to say to employees to um, to urge them not to join a union. That's, that's certainly what the unions would claim. But I think that's only a small slice of it, right? I mean, when my when my grandfather was president of his local, he could have been fired at any time for any reason. Um, you know, they right. didn't. You know, and um, all of these pieces of legislation piled on top of each other. I didn't even mention the uh, Family Medical Leave Act. You know, all of this. All of, why would you pay union dues to get that which you are essentially guaranteed now as an American worker? Uh, you know, I think that's a huge driver um, of the decrease in unionization, I, and I just don't think they can get away from it. Um, and so, you know, I mean, like, obviously, I've followed. I'm proud to represent Amazon. I've followed the Amazon situation. You, you know, the argument was rarely if you join. Um, you know, in the Bessemer situation, if you join the retail uh, wholesalers union, you know, I don't believe those guys ever made the case that, hey, you know, when we get in here, you'll get better health care, you'll get better wages. You know, it was, um, I don't even think they made that argument. You know, it was about, you know, they made other arguments about what, you know, whatever, you know, the, the ongoing pandemic or whatever the argument was at the time. Um, because again, Amazon is a leader in terms of wages and benefits. Um, and then all the other perks that, you know, or perks is probably the wrong word, but all the other rights that they have as, as workers, there's just not that much that the unions can put on the table. Well, yeah, that, and I, this is a couple of years old, but I, I think Amazon is still at an average hiring rate higher than UPS, which is unionized for their, at least their, packages or the um the warehouses so it's the wage argument for the amazon workers is difficult for unions to make as well and yeah, it, I mean, the government like, paternalism i think is huge and, yeah, and and like in new york they're doing a just cause law so now it's not even you know employment quote unquote employment at will and you've got the government now that will defend you if you're fired unjustly on your job so yeah. that goes another thing that 
unions used to have to say, here's what we can sell, but they're not going to have that after a while. That's correct. Yeah, no. Um, and right. And some states have gone even further to protect em- em- employees from what they, you know, what they would argue is inappropriate discharge or, you know, or discrimination mm-hmm. or what have you. And so, um, you know, I mean, again, there's just the, the, the value proposition for a worker, you know, you, you take, you know, it's, you take a 25 year old guy who, you know, who's learning carpentry and the carpenters union comes around. Um, you know, I just think it's a harder case to make than it was, you know, 40, 50 years ago. I mean, that 25 year old is probably trying to learn carpentry so that in a few years he can open his own business, you know, I mean, and that's, you know, and that kind of goes into so much about, you know, my critique of this administration is it, like they don't care what I think, right? I mean, I, I work for a business trade association. I'm not the person they're trying to convince. I have a lot of issues with what they're trying to do. And I spend a lot of my time, you know, formulating arguments and, you know, working with reporters and the press and, I mean, excuse me, and the Congress and, um, and you know, on why I think what they're trying to do is are bad, are, you know, is a bad idea. But whether it's on independent contractor or joint employer, I mean, the, 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 the goal of all of this is to create more union members. And it, the problem is the, the package they're trying to sell, you know, is, is, isn't going over any, any, any better despite this huge whole of government effort. And it's really not the government, the, the administration doesn't have a beef with me. It's really their, op- their problem is all of these workers who, you know, if it's an independent contractor, it's the, if it's the 42 year old mom who wants to freelance and do marketing for 18 hours one week and 27 hours the next week when she can, um, you know, in between running the kids to soccer practice, you know, she doesn't want to be in a union. She doesn't want to be in an employment relationship. She wants to be able to pick and choose her projects when she, you know, and, you know, and when she wants to, and it's the administration that's saying, no, 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 no. We want you back in a 1950s style worker arrangement and it just so many of these workers, particularly independent workers, um, they're really, really loud on Twitter right now. Um, you know, just want no parts, of, no, no parts of this employer relationship, and they certainly don't want to be unionized. Yeah, you're you're probably familiar with the um, fight for freelancers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've had um, Kim Cavan on the podcast yeah. a couple times, and they're. They're just a fun group because they are a bunch of independent people that have banded together almost like a union and are fighting, you know, this effort to pigeonhole them into some, as you said, 1950s structure. Yeah. Where, um, where are things with the independent contractors right now? I know that there was a, um, well, and currently there's a protest. I just saw the news a little while ago, the protest with the truckers out in California at the port of Oakland, they've shut it down for, I think four days now. Correct. Operators. Yeah. So um, the bill out in California, AB5, has what is commonly referred to as the ABC test, which is essentially right. a very, very high bar uh, for um, for businesses to reach to, con- con- you know, can essentially, you know, hire a consultant. And it's basically impossible for these employers to, or excuse me, for these businesses to, um, to enter in agreements with independent contractors. And one of the areas of concern, of course, was these, in, uh, was these truckers out in the state of California. Well, uh, this whole issue of whether or not AB5, as, as it applied to truckers, was preempted by federal law, went straight up to the, to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court essentially de- uh, declined to hear, to, to, to hear the argument that the, that the preemption was in place. So, um, so now we have, yeah, we have a huge issue out there. Uh, my friend um, and colleague, John Gold, which who handles the supply chain uh, for NRF, handles this issue for us. Um, and my members are very concerned about the impact on the supply chain, especially going into uh, back to school and eventually into the holidays. That's sort of one problem within the, in the independent contractor space. But the broader, the broader issue is now before the White House. So the Labor Department has finished its rule on... Um, under where under the Fair Labor Standards Act, who is and who is not an employee, uh, that question is currently at the Office of Management, excuse me, Office of Management and Budget. Um, I'm going to be going in there and talking to them about it next week. 
Um, you know, we've the fight, the freelancer folks uh, have been very, very loud. Um, I don't believe I think they I think the, the Labor Department's been very clear on this point. Um, I don't believe that they can do anything as aggressive as the ABC test in California. That being said, um, you know, we think that the current the current rule, the promulgated during the Trump administration is a completely workable rule. It takes it takes into account the um, how the, how the independent contractor works, that you know whether you know their economic status status as a as a worker, and it again it just allows these workers. And by the way, to continue, you know, you know the importance of this issue has only been magnified during the pandemic when independent right. work became more and more and more important. Um, the term misclassification really is just you know, is just this administration's way of saying this is a worker who's not in a union or not eligible to be unionized. Um, it's, you know, why they, it, you know, if they're misclassified, they, they, we could have the conversation if they're misclassified under current law. Uh, but they, but in moving the line, they're going to pick up a lot of folks who are not, are, are not even, you know, in their mind, in, under current law, quote unquote, misclassified. And so, um, and again, it, the argument is not with us. I mean, a lot of my members can work with uh, independent contractors, whether it's last mile delivery, whether it's marketing, whether it's budgeting, um, financial work, uh, you know, models and performers, uh, you know, uh, cameramen, all sorts of relationships that my members as retailers enter into with ICs. You know, these are these are incredibly important relationships, and to bring these folks in into a traditional employment relationship is not good for my members, and it's not good for the for the workers themselves. So you said something a second ago that I was not aware of that the DOL the the rules they're trying to promulgate um, are not going to be as strict as the ABC test. They've said that repeatedly to us. Um, actually, David Weil, who is the uh, Biden administration's nominee for wage and hour, made this case in his uh, in his nomination process. Eventually, he was rejected by the Senate. Um, but in the nomination process, he he made the case, and the current administration, had, um, Jessica Lumen, who's the acting administrator over there, now has reiterated the case that yes, that's correct. That they that the administration does not feel. That they have the legal authority to implement ABC for the entire country. Interesting. So, do we have any idea what they're thinking? We do not. Um, uh, I will uh, find out here in just a couple of weeks with the rest of the world. Um, you know, I look. I think what, what you know what the unions are what AFL has tried to say is over and over again. Well, what we want to do is permit those workers who want to be in employment relationship with you know, with their, uh, what, who, the company who is now their clients, you know, we want to permit them to be in that relationship. And it, it's exactly wrong, which is to say the, empl the employer, the, the business who is looking at these standards and they're looking at, you know, just the DOL standard at this point, and presumably at some point the NLR NLRB is going to go right down the same road. You know, they're going to, they don't want to bring on all the liability of potentially violating uh, FLSA policy or uh, wage and hour regulation. Um, they're going to find something else, some, find some other way to do it. And it's not the idea that this is going to be somehow voluntary, you, you know, just for those employees who want to be, um, excuse me, just for those workers who want to be employees is just patently ridiculous. So I think they're going to move, you know, move the needle toward, toward, you know, picking up, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of workers, um, making, making the, making the current client, uh, relationship into an employment, employment one, you know, they're going to move down that road. Exactly what that looks like. I just don't know. Yeah. And you just mentioned the NLRB, which is the, I believe it's the Atlanta opera case that's still out there waiting to be decided upon. Yeah, that, that, that's the one that would overturn um, Dallas uh, DFW, right? The DFW. Yeah, super I believe yeah. so. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, and so again, that's 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 coming down the pike. Just whenever we we filed comments on that, and um, and we'll we'll just have to see what it, what it looks like. I just I just don't know yet. Yeah, 
It's, um, and I know, I think last I saw, and this is uh, from the fight for freelancers that the, I think Illinois is trying to do an ABC test. Yeah, there are certainly other states as well. Yes, uh, I'm not really sure. I'm not up to speed exactly on which states, but there's no question other states are going down the same road too. Um, and this is a huge, you know, this is one of the components of PRO Act. Um, right. And there was a lot of discussion, you know, when PRO Act was, was a thing that could potentially happen, although I think that's no longer the case. Um, you know, the that well could uber and lyft and you know uber eats and all these all these folks could they get that provision taken out um and you know stick the employer community with the rest of the bill which was you know it was it, i believe in total it was 31 different provisions um you know could they could they take that out and then essentially you know green light the bill for uh you know for moderate um for moderates over on the on the senate side to support you know and my my opinion was the entire time was that would never happen because you know this this you know that provision the abc test the point of it again just to go back to where we've been on the entire time is to create more union eligible employees and that's really one of the few provisions of the pro act that does exactly that like i mean there's so many provisions to the pro act but in terms of you know making the pie bigger you know increasing the opportunity for increased unionization putting more workers into the employee pot as opposed to the independent contractor pot, which as the unions are well aware is just gonna to continue to get bigger, again, especially post pandemic, um, that was never going to happen. The, the employee to IC issue uh, is one, you know, is a huge, huge issue for the, for the union movement for that reason. Yeah, and I guess uh, for the listener's perspective, the independent contractor, I think uh, one of the estimates out there is there's about 59 million Americans that are independent contractors or freelancers or gig workers and compare that to about 14 million give or take union members out there yeah there's a and gig work obviously has grown it's grown through the pandemic and it's taking more of the slice of the pie if you will of the unions right so you've got you know independent owner operators that are not employed by trucking companies who are therefore you know not unionizable by the teamsters and a whole bunch of others out there. Yeah, and that's what this is about, right? I mean, um, and so, yeah, I mean, the, it's so frustrating for them, for the unions, that these people, you know, they work when they want to, some of them, you know, some of them work at night. I mean, you know, they call, you know, they call them, you know, uh, you know the, the disenf disenfranchised Uber, you know, Uber, you know, Uber drivers, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> there was a great, there was a witness on on the house side a few years ago. I can't remember what the total scenario was, but you know, one Uber driver says, "I'm not, I'm not unempowered. I'm gonna, <laughs> I choose when I want to work." And then, by the way, if Uber is making me angry, I can grab my cell phone and switch over and work for Lyft in about two minutes. Right. I'm the most empowered worker in the country. Um, you know, and it was just a great point. Um, you know, and again, same with DoorDash and Uber Eats and Pope, you know, put a script and all these guys. Um, you know, I mean, um, it's, you know, it's something whereby it's, it's just, these are empowered people who work independently, who work when they want to work. Um, and they're able, they're able to essentially, you know, essentially establish a, an income flow without a traditional employment relationship. And again, that this drives, just this just drives the union movement insane. Yeah, I, I have a friend of mine, he's a pretty good friend that is a um, an Uber driver when he wants to be. And basically he and his wife make good money. And during the pandemic, he lives in the DC area. I guess all yeah. the Uber drivers were not working because of the pandemic. And so he's like, oh, I'm gonna start driving. So he he made a killing during the pandemic oh, yeah. and, and you know, he, he drives Uber to build his Jeep and go out, you know, for months on end out on the, out in the wild. But he told me years and years ago, which is kind of a fascinating side story that the amount of money, the venture capital that was going into Uber was not to build a taxi company. It was really to map out the streets of the world for <laughs> auto vehicles. And, yeah. and that's what they've been doing. Right? Yeah. I mean, so, I, look, I, I am not an expert on that and that whatsoever. <laughs> so don't pretend to be. 
I will say that, you know, the, the power that these workers have and, you know, and they can just have the option. They have so many options. I mean, think about school teachers and just the ability to over the summer go ahead and pick up you know, several thousand dollars at, you know, and be able to work in a vacation, you know, with your kids when you want to. Um, that's, those are the people that I like, like I see them on Facebook and they're, you know, and they're, um, they're, they're driving Lyft and Uber um, during yeah. the summer. And, you know, I mean, think about it, think about a few years ago, you know, what that would even look like if you wanted a part-time job in the summer, you know, you'd have to get out of school and, you know, mid-June as a school teacher, and then you immediately go into some sort of training program to learn a job. And then you're, you know, you're in the job and you gotta, you know, you gotta figure out a way to get your, you know, get a vacation in and then jump back to your normal job in, you know, in mid-August. And, and now, it, you know, they don't need to, they don't need a lot of training. They need little to no training they need, and they just need to, to download the app and get started and, and they can earn some money in the summertime. I mean, that's, that's just like, that's incredibly important. College kids on summer break, on summer break or college right. on winter break, um, you know, and so, um, you know, and I don't represent Uber. Um, so um, I do represent well, I, delivery companies, but I, I just, I always think that I, the, the, again, the argument the administration has is not with me. It's really with these workers who just don't need their help. Well, the fascinating part about it is, and I, I mentioned that story about Andy, because if he's correct, and the whole purpose of developing these, you know, rideshare companies is really to go to automatic vehicles, and the administration, the government, you know, whether it's, whether it's through Congress, whether it's through NLRB, DOL, they basically blow up the whole independent contractor model in the effort to try to unionize some drivers that in 10 years may not be there. That's right. There's that, there's that. It's like, it's right. That's some irony. Oh yeah. You know, don't worry. 59 million Americans jobs or, or gigs, you know, to get a target that is eventually going away anyway. I mean, looking around the corner, I mean, you raise a huge issue, right? Because I mean, forget just the Uber drivers. Think about how many people in this country, you know, drive some vehicle, as their major as the, as their major source of employment, right? So whether it's truckers or ambulance drivers or all sorts of, you know, the the change to electronic vehicles or electric vehicles, excuse me, you know, is going to be a massive, massive employment question. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I think it's probably under theorized a little bit exactly how, you know, exactly what that looks like. Um, and um, yeah, it's a, you know, whether whether it's deliveries, whether it's um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, all sorts of um, vehicles at airports and uh, deliveries, uh, excuse me, you know, uh, transportation hubs, and on and on, uh, the move to those vehicles is going to be, you know, a massive, a massive employment change, something, I mean, the likes of which we like, probably haven't seen since the turn of the 20th, from the 19th to 20th century. Well, I'll tell you, with all the port stuff going on, um, and I kind of, keep up with this just out of curiosity, but the, all the port stuff going on, Volvo has got an automated um, container vehicle that can move containers from oh, yeah. ship to ship to cargo spot and all that sort of stuff. And there's apparently, it was either Norway or Sweden, I don't remember which, but there's an entire port that's set up that way. I believe, it's, you, I believe it's Copenhagen, Denmark, but I could be wrong about that. That could be, yeah. I, I just I vaguely remember it, but it was... Um, Oh yeah, there's a there's a great video if you want to be entertained um, with the International Longshoremen's Association talking about exactly that issue, um, and you know, and the ILWA executive pounds the table and says we will never, never permit automated container handling in this country, and you just think about that. <laughs> I mean, you think about you know the guys who were you know making money you know driving horse-drawn carriages in the late 1800s saying you know you're never going to take my job away you know right. with some sort of automobile uh, you know and it's the same sort of thing um in, in my view um but you know yeah that, that's a huge yes i mean look we could spend the we could spend another hour on the ports um actually uh i grew up my dad worked in that industry growing up so i'm, <laughs> I'm a little too familiar with that yeah. yeah. Well, I, it, to me, it's just, it's the fascinating thing that, you know, as they're 
as we talk about all of this stuff and then just the amount of governmental resources that they're trying to go after something that is eventually not going to be there. It's just amazing. You know, it's the whole with the, with the drivers as independent contractors, I think is the port of LA or something like the NLRB ruled against one of the employers out there and said that, no, they're not independent. They're actual employees. Of course, right. that's going to go through the courts, but right. you know, all this effort is again, to unionize them where they're not going to be there after whether it's a decade or 15 years down the road. At some point, that's, that, yeah, that's exactly right. And yeah. then it becomes an existential issue for unions in general. Like, what is your product? And yeah, and I, I, you know, I mean, I think, look, I, you know, before he died, Richard Trump has said, you know, the PRO Act has to happen. Um, and I, th and by the way, for years, you know, and I have a lot of respect for, you know, a lot of the FLCIO lobbyists. I used, I, they've lobbied, they lobbied me when I was in the Hill. And I, you know, a lot of them are very, are very, you know, very, very good lobbyists and they understand the law and they understand Congress. And, you know, they, they, for many years, the AFL-CIO was very, very skeptical, if not downright hostile to the notion of filibuster reform. Mm -hmm. And it was only, interestingly, this Congress that they, that they turned heel and said, no, 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 no. We need filibuster reform, and it's got to be applied to the PRO Act. Right. And, you know, you got you to gotta wonder about that, right? So what, you know, what is exactly the, the economic and dynamic that's driving them to change that political position? And, and I think it's exactly what you just said, right, which is um, they see the end of the union movement, and the, the Biden administration is going to be one of their last chances to cut um, to cut essentially various uh, various pieces of legislation that would deny the right of employees to not be in a union or to essentially coerce them into a union, um, and that's that's what the administration is doing. And they, they the Biden administration said they were going to be the most pro union administration in history, um, and they're going to do their best to live up to that moniker. Um, but I do think it's interesting that um, that they changed their position on the filibuster at this time, and I think a lot of the re a lot of the reason for that is exactly what you're talking about: is they they see they don't they don't see a bright future ahead. Well, it's I, and I've been preaching this for years. They need to go back and reinvent themselves, and and it's not a new invention. They just need to go back about a hundred years or so and get back to what unions used to be all about, which is taking workers, training them, making really good at whatever the craft was. And, yeah. I, and they don't really want to talk about that, although they did talk about it back in the mid 2000s when they broke up the AFL-CIO. That was That's the right. whole that win thing. Yeah, that was the whole Andy Stern thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And, the, I, you know, Andy retired not long after that, but it was, um, it was something that they should probably go back to before it's too late because this pendulum swing, you know, yeah, it's beneficial now, but it's short term gains for, I think, long term disadvantage. Yeah. And, you know, Andy was a, Andy is a, a really, really, really smart guy. And, you know, he would, you know, he would, you know, look at, uh, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the, uh, oh, gosh, the, the AFL-CIO president of the day. Um, John Sweeney. Sweeney. Thank you. Yeah. And he looked at Sweeney, you know, and kept saying like, you know, Sweeney's position was, we're not going to invest in organizing. We're going to try to change the laws first. And we're going to use every spare dollar we can to funnel into the Democratic Party, own and operate the Democratic Party, and try to get the laws changed so that it's easier to unionize. Um, Stern thought that was ridiculous. <laughs> and he wrote about that, you know, at length in his book. And um, well, I think when Sweeney and Trumpka and Linda Chavez Thompson took over at the AFL-CIO, their whole thing was to get away from politics and back to organizing. And that was the whole... You know, they turned into their basic foe, which back then was Lane Kirkland. I'm going back way back, but yeah, um, yeah, and the, that's funny. Yeah, no, wow, yeah, and that, right. That was Clinton administration, right? But mm -hmm. um, you know, and um, yeah, I, I, look, I think Stern was right. Look, I think Stern was right to make the argument that um, we have the tools; we just need to make the argument and. Um, you know, and then, uh, but I don't know, we'll have to see. I think, um, you know, I like, like there's a lot, you know, there's going to be a lot of ink <laughs> spilled in the next few months and already has been spilled. 
you know, on, oh, look, this is a new day for the labor movement. Look at look at Amazon, look at Starbucks, look at this one Apple store in Towson, Maryland, look at, you know, look at REI in Soho and look, you know, look at we're gonna we're gonna do this. You know, I, I'm very, very skeptical. <laughs> I mean, like, um, at the because again, at the end of the day, they they have such a difficult time making the argument that, you know, paying union dues and foregoing the opportunity to move up up into management, foregoing the opportunity to own your own business, foregoing the opportunity for independent work, you know, and then paying dues for it year after year after year after year. It's just a hard case for them to make. And, um, but, you know, it's my job to, uh, to essentially push back on these governmental initi initiatives that are trying to make it easier for them to, uh, to engage with workers and to essentially coerce workers into unionization. Right. Well, Ed, we've been on for about an hour. I, I assume you've got some family or, or animals to feed. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely a dog and a cat. So, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate that you have me on. I'm happy to do it anytime. And uh, I appreciate the time and and kind of catching up. I I do these every now and then when um, when there's something going on in DC and I've got some friends down there and I say, "What's going on? Come on the podcast." So I, I appreciate the updates. Yeah, absolutely. We're um, you know I'm sure that. Uh, if you want to come come back, and uh, I'm sure someone, either myself or someone else from the Coalition for Democratic Workplace, would be happy to join you anytime. Oh, that's awesome. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much. Really appreciate. Talk it. to you soon. Enjoyed it. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, that was Ed Eggy from the National Retail Federation talking about some of the things that the Coalition for a Democratic Workplace are working on. And I'm going to include a bunch of links to some of the things he was talking about as well as the uh, press releases from the CDW under the audio portion of this episode of Labor Relations Radio. And as you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in Washington. We're trying to cover it as much as we can. Uh, this podcast is being broadcast while traveling, so... Uh, you'll notice the audio portions are sometimes a little bit um, off. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT under the audio portion of this episode. Or give us a call at 1-888-668-6466. And as always, thanks for listening. to Labor Relations Radio. Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.